You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Today's podcast is brought to you by Ovation Fertility, a leader in the field of IVF lab services. Ovation partners with some of America's leading fertility specialists to provide a range of services to support fertility treatment, including fertility testing, IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, genetic testing, and long-term storage of reproductive material. You can learn more about Ovation at OvationFertility.com. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my brilliantly talented, fun-loving friends and co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from the Texas Fertility Center. Hello, Abby. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. I think it's the what's that word? The thesaurus. I keep I, I keep meaning to come up with the adjectives I really really want to say, and I forget to do that. So Susan was laughing because I was like looking up in the air and trying to pull those adjectives out of the air, but I really meant them. They were really they were really meant. I mean, they were on the tip of my tongue. What's the only academic dinosaur out there? The thesaurus. Oh, that yeah, sounds but like no. A- I totally bit the joke because I couldn't get thesaurus out. Oh, <laughs> It's a bit of a tongue twister, as I just demonstrated for everybody. <laughs> so, well, what have you guys been up to lately? You've been doing well? We've been good. Been busy. So, Susan was just telling me she one of her favorite things she likes to do when she's not being a doctor or going to school or doing all of her other things that she does <laughs> in her busy life. She says she loves to watch movies. I What's love your movies. favorite movie? <laughs> now, I, my absolute favorite movie is really, really hard to like decipher. It just depends on the mood I'm in. I mean, I can say like some of my all-time favorite movies, I, I'm a romantic comedy type of girl, definitely, but I love adventure movies. I love okay, so movies. I have an idea. Okay, I'm going to throw out a genre and you're going to give me your favorite movie. I, I'm going to come up with two or three and Carrie, you come up with two or three. Since Susan has such a plethora of ones she likes. So comedy, what's your favorite comedy? Comedy. Hmm. So I like Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore comedy. Any of the movies that they're Groundhog in together. Day. Not Groundhog Day. That's no, no. Ground, what was the one she was no. on where she kept the same day? 50 First Dates. 50 First Dates. <laughs> I love, they're one of those like Hollywood, like they just make magic happen together. Um, like, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, like yeah, those two actor, those are good, actors yeah. belong together, which obviously I'm a huge Sleepless in Seattle fan. <laughs> What's well, and for even a and you got mail, huh? The suspenseful movie. Suspenseful. Like, not necessarily oh, first um, not but, gory, just I see, I see dead people. What's that one? Oh, um, oh yeah, the Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense. Oh, yes. Fifth Element, Sixth Sense. They're both numbers. <laughs> I like that one. Would you say Fifth Element? That's a space movie. Sci-fi-ish. Kind of like my Groundhog Day. I, I had the idea, but I just didn't have the right name. <laughs> okay, about, so how okay. about documentary, Susan? Oh, documentary is better. Do that one. Ooh. <laughs> okay, so I can make a joke here because my husband always says that his 
favorite documentary is Forrest Gump. So that's a big <laughs> joke in my household because one of my kids actually thought for a long time that it was a documentary. Of course, he'd never <laughs> seen it. <laughs> but I was like, you have to stop saying that because people think he's stupid because he thinks well, Forrest, Forrest Gump, Gump is a documentary. <laughs> Forrest Gump would say the same thing, I'm sure. He would. <laughs> All right, Carrie, what was your romance? But you said Sleepless in Seattle, so that might actually qualify already. Yeah, Sleepless in Seattle. I can say one of my all-time favorites that I've just finished watching like three times recently was The Holiday. There is something about that movie that, I mean, like it just... I think part of it is that I can relate to both of the female lead characters. I think there's part of both of them in all of us. Yeah. It's like, you know, it just makes me feel so good. And it's just a, you know, calming, have a nice glass of wine movie. So. Tearjerker. Ooh, tearjerker. <laughs> Gosh. I saw the Joy Luck Club a long time ago and I cried and cried and cried. It's like a movie where there's like five different scenes of Asian mothers and their daughters and kind of yeah. the traumas they've gone through. <laughs> Gosh, I just remember I was like, I cried through the whole movie. It wasn't like it, you know, a lot of movies will kind of culminate up to the end and then you cry. This one was like every vignette they showed, I was like crying and crying and they go to the next one. <laughs> I'm sure I've cried in a lot of other movies since then, but that's the Toy one that Story comes to Three, mind. huge tearjerker. Oh, oh Toy Story 3. Oh, Toy Story yes. 3. I, yeah. I actually didn't watch all the way to the end because I heard how brutal it was at the end. I just couldn't do I, it. I went to the theater to see that one and I was like a fountain. There was not a like dry place on my sleeve. Yeah. I kept on like... <laughs> yeah, really all of the Disney movies at this stage of my life, I can count on crying by the end of them because it's either about some parent who died. It's usually or, a dead mother. No, uh, it's not a parent. A mom it's dies a, in it's, every it's Disney It's a dead movie. mother. It's not, it's not a parent. So it's dead dads that trigger me and there are more of them than you would think. But not uh-huh. Disney. Disney's mom apparently died when he was young. So that's how he pulls at everybody's heartstring because it's always a dead mother. Nemo was a dead mother. Bambi. Bambi was Bambi. a dead mother. Bond King, dead mother. They're all dead. It is a tearjerker when they yeah. do that. All like, right. Do we have a final one for Susan or should we move on to our questions now? This is kind of fun, actually. I like this. Fun. We should move on to the question. Okay, Carrie. We'll move on to the questions. All right. Our question. We're going to do two questions today. Okay. So our first one is, Hi, love your podcast so much. I am 30 years old and my husband and I conceived our now two and a half year old naturally. After trying for number two with no success for a year, we started with a fertility clinic in July. My results have been mostly normal with the low end of normal AMH of 1.3. My husband's semen analysis came back as zero sperm. We were shocked. He has congenital adrenal hyperplasia and it has been on steroid-based medication since infancy. The doctors were assuming this caused hormonal problems stopping sperm production. He has been on HCG shots three times a week for the last five months. And the most recent semen analysis came back with a count less than 1 million. During that time, we did one egg-free cycle, 10 frozen eggs, and are going to begin round two of IVF before fertilizing. We opted to gather as many eggs as possible first, since ideally we would like to have two to three more babies in the future. I am wondering what are the chances that his sperm will be okay for ICSI have heard horror stories about others with MFI having nothing to fertilize and what caused the big change when we conceived naturally three years ago. Also, is it unrealistic to think we'll end up with desired family size given my AMH? Thank you. And I apologize for the long question. 
Yeah, it sounds like there's, you know, potential egg issue, potential sperm issues all playing in there. Did the sperm actually ever, were they able to get any sperm? Did he produce any sperm? I missed Yeah, that. but it was less than a million. Okay. My first thing is that I think egg freezing is great when we need to freeze eggs, but... Mm-hmm. Not you know, you it feels sperm. like you are married in a committed relationship and yeah. you're planning on building this family of three to four children with your current partner that considering your eggs and his sperm, I would do cycles to create embryos in the future. Like I said, freezing eggs is great when it comes down to the embryos created from fresher frozen eggs. I think they're essentially equal, but it takes more frozen eggs to yield a baby than the same cohort of fresh eggs. So especially if we're worried about egg number, I would do that instead of freezing a whole bunch of eggs and then converting those into embryos later. But that's kind of my words of advice. Yeah, and I would agree wholeheartedly with that. The one thing I kind of wonder, our patient said, well, why did they have no problem the first time around? It kind of makes you wonder that there's some other medical issue that could be going on. And so, you know, sometimes just like women have, you know, a lot of physical and psychological stress that makes him stop making eggs. I kind of wonder, you didn't mention this, but I wonder if your husband has had a lot of stress at work. I mean, I know he has congenital adrenal hyperplasia and, and he's on steroids and I'm not sure how that impacts, but I would think if that was pretty well controlled, I would tend to believe that that didn't really have a big impact on his sperm. So I just wonder if maybe there's not something else going on because certainly treating him with gonadotrophins kind of helped. And so I would kind of look into stress, emotional stress, physical stress may play a role in sperm production. But I echo what Susan said in terms of, you know, I would create embryos, not eggs, because you're further down the pike and you really kind of know, have a much better chance of knowing what your odds are of actually having a baby from an embryo than you do from an egg. I would definitely agree with that. Given the option of getting embryos, that would be my first choice. And and sometimes with sperm issues, you don't always have that choice. Sometimes it's it's going to take us a while to get sperm and egg age is an issue. And so we want to get the eggs out now when we can. Sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes you plan to do embryo freezing and you just don't get a sperm sample. That is more prone to happening when a guy's count is low because men have ups and downs as well. And unlike women, you don't have a period that you can judge, oh, we're on an up, oh, we're on a down to time things. And so sometimes when someone has a lower count, you get to the day of egg retrieval and they're they're on a low swing and they don't have anything. And so you want to create embryos, but you end up freezing eggs instead. And so it's a good stopgap measure, but it's not what you planned. So I think the positive too is you're 30 and you've had a child before. And if it's happened once, I mean, I think Certainly once the egg and the sperm can actually get together, hopefully you have a really good chance of having another one. Yeah, perseverance is key in these cases. That's right. All right, y'all wanna do one more? Yeah. Sure. Okay, hello, I am 33 (laughs) and been trying to conceive for two years with unexplained infertility. Five IUIs, so trying to do IVF in the new year. My last IUI had a big response to the letrozole and gonal F and had 12 follicles. Ooh, doctor thought we should try egg retrieval since that'll be the next step anyway but my estrogen was 520, so we didn't do it. What are different reasons for this? What will be the protocol for IVF in regards to how to fix that problem if it is fixable? You're on letrozole. That's why your estrogen level was lower. We actually use letrozole, especially like in our um, patients who have breast cancer to help keep estrogen levels lower. And so it's one of those things that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something you have to be aware of when you're 
doing your stimulation. So I think that's just taking all labs with a grain of salt. Well, I wonder when she said 12 follicles, I wonder how big those were because it's really only the ones that are, I don't know, well, sometimes as low as 14, but the ones that are 17, 18, 19, 20, those are the bigger ones. And I wonder how many of those you had. Yeah, absolutely. I think you'd be a good candidate for IVF because you do make that many eggs. And with IVF, we try and push you even further so that we can get all those eggs to come along and mature at the same rate. When you're using gonalef and letrozole for an IUI cycle, we're only trying to stimulate one or two eggs because we really don't want a whole big, we don't want you to have a basketball team at one time. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with all of that. Goals of an IUI cycle are very different than an IVF cycle. And fortunately for you, even if the gonadotropin cycle didn't look as good, it sounds like the IVF cycle is a fair game place to start. So... Nice. All right. So today we are going to talk about, you know, patients who have PCOS and we certainly see a lot of those in our practice. And we're going to talk about kind of what options patients with PCOS actually have for treatment. So Susan, tell me what you would tell a PCOS patient that presents to your office that's really worried about having it and their likelihood of pregnancy. So first of all, I think it's important to actually make sure my patient has PCOS. <laughs> um, that's, that, that is very important. You're right. That's, that's the first step because, you know, unfortunately, sometimes people are told based on either their weight or their menstrual history that, oh, I think you have PCOS and they haven't really had a full evaluation and sometimes those same symptoms can actually be a sign of having not enough eggs instead of too many eggs <laughs> at one time. So PCOS is a diagnosis of exclusion, which means that we want to make sure you don't have certain things. Those certain things generally include thyroid issues, issues with a hormone called prolactin, something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Those are things we want to make sure aren't an issue. Now, there are a number of different criteria. I would say most of us kind of probably go by the criteria that you have to have two out of three qualifications to have the diagnosis of PCOS. Those three things are one, ovaries that appear polycystic on ultrasound, okay, which means you have 12 or more follicles on at least one ovary. You don't even have to have it on both ovaries. Signs of hyperandrogenism, which is hyperandrogenism just means like elevated levels of male type hormones. All females have male hormones. Males have female hormones. There's crossover, but that can be things like acne, increased hair growth in places you don't want to have hair, um, blood levels of high androgens, things like testosterone, DHEAS, things like that. And the third criteria is irregular periods or not ovulating on a regular basis. So you can actually have polycystic ovarian syndrome without having polycystic ovaries. Sounds a little crazy. And then and the reverse is true too. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I think of... PCOS as number one, a poorly named condition. If it was up to me, it would be polyfollicular ovarian syndrome because you have lots of follicles. Cysts are something that are greater than two centimeters that are not supposed to be there at that particular point in time. So poorly named. And there's a spectrum. There are some people with PCOS who have lots of symptoms and lots of kind of repercussions from those symptoms and other people have lesser degrees. So when we finally get that diagnosis, then we start talking about treatment. 
So Carrie, how would you start the workup for PCOS in a patient who presents to your office? History is a huge component of it. So really getting a detailed menstrual history. And this is where those apps on your phone come in hugely helpful because being able to have someone say, yeah, I consistently like 32 days between cycles, 35, 34, 36, 32 is really helpful. And also saying, you know, I had two periods last year is really helpful. So menstrual history is really important. Getting details on acne, on hair growth, on methods to remove hair growth. So especially with laser treatments, a lot of times I'll come in and have someone do a physical exam and I won't notice anything. And it's not unless they tell me, usually after me asking, have you had any hair growth that you don't like on your upper lip, chin, chest, back? We get we get that history. So the history is really important for this. We get blood work. And we'll look at things like a total testosterone level, sometimes DHEAS, although that's elevated in a lot of folks, checking for congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So quite a few pieces of the blood work to make sure that there's nothing gone awry. And that's not something necessarily that OBGYN, general OBGYNs do. We do it more because we're really trying to dive in deep. And then we look at the egg testing because, of course, irregular periods can be because you have way too many eggs or because you don't have enough. And so getting that ovarian reserve testing we talked about in our last episode is really important because if someone has a very high FSH and very few eggs and a very low AMH, that is a totally different story and a totally different reason for not getting pregnant than someone who has really high counts and really favorable hormone levels. So that's kind of the the basic evaluation. Then I still do check tubes and I still check many of the other fertility components because just because someone has one problem doesn't mean that they don't have another. And you really just have to miss one thing in your career to realize, I don't ever want to do that again. And so someone with PCOS can have blocked tubes or can have a partner with low sperm count. So mm-hmm. even when I think I've got a pretty slam dunk reason for why a couple's not getting pregnant, I still check the other stuff. Because if you have blocked tubes, for example, then ovulation induction, just to get an egg to grow is not going to work because that the eggs and the sperm can't reach each other. They can't have a party and create a baby. And so it doesn't matter how much Clomid or how much letrozole would give you is never going to work. So let's not even waste your time and your money and your emotional energy. So Susan, how does body weight affect the diagnosis of PCOS? And how does it affect other things that are kind of related to PCOS? So an important thing to know is that PCOS happens to thin ladies, that happens to overweight ladies. And we know that there are some people who have what I call weight-induced PCOS. So you Mm -hmm. kind of have like a genetic predisposition to start having issues like acne, hair growth, irregular periods, those types of things as you gain weight. And in those people even a 10% amount of weight loss can actually pop you back into ovulating and improve chances of pregnancy and healthy menstrual cycles and things like that, okay? Not everybody's wired that way. So again, I was talking about that spectrum. So you have some people who from the time they were 12, 13, 14, always had irregular periods, always had those things. Now, people with PCOS do have an increased risk of having things that are tied to obesity. So things like high cholesterol, increased risk of 
issues with glucose or sugar metabolism. So pre-diabetes, diabetes, diabetes in pregnancy. There are definitely lifestyle things in there. And there are quite a few women with PCOS who have obesity and it can be a lot harder for those women to lose weight. And so, you know, I remember when I was back in fellowship, um, one of the researchers was finding that even the mitochondria, the little powerhouses in your cells in people with PCOS, they work a little bit different. So one thing we hear from our patients with PCOS and obesity is like, I'm going to the gym with my girlfriend. I'm doing the same thing. I'm eating less. I'm doing all these things. And that person's dropping weight <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. And I am struggling, struggling, struggling. So the important thing to hear is like the struggle is real. You are not imagining it. Yeah. You can do it. Okay. But it it does tend to be a little bit harder. So that topic in particular, we um, we just spoke with Dr. Florencia Halperin. And, and that episode was... Yeah, that's a great episode to listen to. That, that really ties into that because she and her organization, like their whole goal is to help people lose weight. And a lot of times it's PCOS patients who need that help because they're working with both some of the environmental stuff as well as some of the physiologic stuff. And it's a double whammy. And it does make such a huge difference. And I don't know about you guys, but some of my favorite patients to see are patients where I say... We have the hard conversation of like, okay, we have to address this. And then they come back and they're pregnant on their own. I just do little happy dances in my office when <laughs> those positive HCGs come through because while I love to feel needed and wanted and all of those things, it's much better to not. And everybody's happier when you can just do it on your own because making a baby in the bedroom is a lot more fun than making a baby in the lab. <laughs> That is so true. So Susan, I think that's great that you call it weight. And sometimes some people have weight induced PCOS because I think sometimes patients are really surprised about the fact that you mean I can stop having PCOS? They sort of think I either have it or I don't. But you're right. The difference in 10 or 15 pounds can be the difference in having it or not. It's kind of like diabetes. You know, a lot of people understand that if you gain weight, you're more likely to become diabetic because of your hormonal changes. And it's really sort of the same condition that's almost intermixed with PCOS that can also happen as well. If you gain 10 pounds, you know, you, you can become or you can have PCOS. And so, Carrie, tell me what when you see patients with PCOS and I don't know about you, but I'm actually kind of excited when I see patients with PCOS because of all the things we see, that's probably one of the ones that's a little more straightforward and a little bit easier to treat. So what are some things that you start with in terms of treatments for patients with PCOS? So assuming a young patient with no other stuff going on, like the rest of the testing is unremarkable. And assuming that we have time, meaning, you know, not a 40 year old who wants four kids where that calculus is different, but young patient with just PCOS, we talk about the lifestyle interventions of weight loss because that can have a lot of impact. And then we talk about basic ovulation induction. And that's usually by giving letrozole because letrozole is the drug of choice for PCOS. Um, it works very similarly to Clomid in terms of what you see, but it tends to be a bit more effective in PCOS patients. And so it's designed to help one, maybe two eggs to grow, which especially in PCOS patients is key because the thought is they're not getting pregnant because their eggs aren't coming out to play. So that once you do get those eggs to come out to play, you're more likely to hit a pregnancy. And that's why you don't want three or four or five eggs out there because you don't want them to have triplets or quadruplets or end up on the cover of Time magazine or getting their own TV show because of how many babies they had in one go. And so we do letrozole. And the way that 
Many REIs do it. We tend to be a little bit more monitoring and ultrasound and lab heavy is you check an ultrasound beforehand, make sure that she doesn't have a cyst that's going to get in the way. You say, please take these five days of meds. And then, you know, somewhere around day 12 or so, give or take a couple days, we check another ultrasound to make sure that a follicle has grown, maybe two, but there's not a half dozen of them there. And we're looking to make sure that they're the right size. And so that's typically how we start. And then I tend to give HCG as a trigger shot once I see those follicles are big because PCOS has two components. The eggs don't grow and the eggs don't release. And so I just want to take the guesswork out of that and we give the letrozole to help them grow. That will in part help them to release. But the HCG is a really good eviction notice. Like it's going to kick that egg out, tell it to grow up, get out. And then after that, we figure out, do we want to time intercourse or do we want to use an insemination? And that depends on other factors. So Susan, anything to add about the initial treatment? And if the initial treatment doesn't work, what would you do next? In my PCOS patients, I do tend to use inositol or ovocetol from Theralogics. I think it's a great product. I've actually had some people get spontaneously pregnant while I'm like, hey, we're going to do your workup, start the stuff. And they're like, I'm pregnant. I'm like, great. I'm glad I could help. Usually it doesn't work always that way, but I, I think it is a good adjunct. And the nice thing about the letrozole is we can start off with baby doses. And we can, as reproductive endocrinologists, we can actually be pretty aggressive with them. And I often will use, if I'm not having the success I want, I will use a single injection of a gonadotropin, the injectable medications in conjunction with the oral medicines, the, the letrozole. And I see that that kind of boosts our chances of a success without significant chances of us getting multiples, especially higher order multiples. So one thing that I do avoid in these patients are the pure injectable medications, the gonadotropin. So doing day after day after day of those injections, there's very, very good evidence to show that if we can get follicles to recruit with oral medication or oral plus a tiny bit of injectable, that just doing those pure injectable medications doesn't actually increase your chances of pregnancy and it just increases your risk of getting those higher order multiples, triplets, quadruplets, that type of thing, which is just riskier for mom and for babies. So not a big fan of doing that anymore. Now, there are going to be some people who despite our best efforts, and, and there's some other therapies I've used in the past. Sometimes people will add steroids to their stimulation protocols to kind of make the ovaries more receptive. Sometimes adding metformin can make ovaries a little more receptive, especially to the oral medication. Now, my one little thing about metformin is metformin is reasonable at helping you get periods regularly. But again, if you look at the data, it's really crappy by itself at getting you pregnant. So metformin by itself is probably not going to help you achieve pregnancy that well, but metformin can make your ovaries a little more sensitive to the oral medications we're going to give you. So I will admit I do use Clomid because I think for some patients, particularly heavier patients, Femora just doesn't, it doesn't cut it. They don't ovulate on it. I think in our state, we don't have a lot of coverage for fertility treatment beyond oral medicine. And so a lot of our patients just can't afford to move on to more aggressive therapy because it's more expensive. And so sometimes I've used higher doses of Clomid and I have had pretty good success in heavier patients on higher doses of Clomid. You know, five to 10% chance of twins. I've had one set of triplets in 20 years on Clomid. So 
Certainly with injectable drugs, I do worry about multiples, but not as much with Clomid, or at least not anything greater than twins. Um, and really, we only see that about 10% of the time. I do think injectables are helpful. And there's some patients that just, no matter how hard you try with Femora slash Letrozole, or Clomid slash Clomiphene citrate, they just don't ovulate. So you do at some point have to move to gonadotropins. Whether you do that with insemination or whether you do that through IVF, just some patients just, you can't get them to produce their own endogenous FSH to mature an egg. So I think with PCOS, it's it's multifaceted. I think different patients respond to different things. Um, and it's just kind of hard to know, you know, what to do for an individual person. And unfortunately, it's sort of trial and error with some of the things that we do. Any last words that you guys have or any last things we need to mention about PCOS and our options? One of the important things that I try to emphasize to my patients is that PCOS is the way you're wired. It is part of who you are and that is okay. And we are happy to help you work with your PCOS at whatever phase in your life that you're in. So if you're in the baby making phase, we're going to be focusing on baby making. And if you're in the non-baby making phase, We're going to focus on keeping you healthy and happy. And so realize there's, there's people like us to help you and it's okay. It's just who you, it's part of who you are. And we're going to work through it throughout the various stages of your life. All right. Good discussion. So to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave a review at iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So hop on and leave us a like or a comment. We'd really appreciate it. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right, we will see you guys soon. Bye. Bye. We want to thank Ovation Fertility for sponsoring today's podcast. On the road to parenthood, many of our listeners find themselves in need of fertility testing, IVF, and other related services, such as egg donation, genetic testing, or gestational surrogacy. Ovation is a one-stop shop for services that many people may need as they go through fertility care. You can learn more about Ovation services for hopeful parents at ovationfertility.com.